Forefront, it's, uh, it's so good to be with you today, and I just want to start by asking a question. What is more important to you, how you start or how you finish? Like, re- really, what, if, if you had to, to, to bring it down to, to, to what you find most is important, is it, is it really how, how you begin or is it how you end? Because I, I think th- there's something inside of us that says we want to start things well, don't we? I mean, how many of you, you start a new job, you want to start it well? You start a new relationship. You want it to start well. I'm, articles and blogs and, and books all over Amazon about how to, to start well, but is it more important how we start or how we finish? October 8th, 1956. It was game five of the 1956 World Series between the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers. The series was tied at 2-2 and that night, a, a young 26-year-old right-hander named Don Larson took the hill. And if you guys know anything about that World Series, that night became something special that went down in history. That, that night, Don Larson, he was no rookie. He had been pitching before. He had pitched the year before in the World Series and done well, but something was special in the air that night. Larson came out and he started well. If you guys know, he went through the first eight innings and retired every single batter, 24 for 24. And, and what is interesting is up until that point, there had only been one no-hitter in the 1926 World Series. Nobody had ever had flirted with it since. But Larson was on the cusp of doing something no one had ever done, of throwing a perfect game. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you know a perfect game, you don't give up a hit, you don't give up a walk, and you don't hit any batters with a random bitch. And so Larson is 24 for 24, sitting in the dugout, just thinking about the top of the ninth inning. There has been, up until today, 218,000 baseball games played. Over those 218,000 baseball games played, there's been 314 no-hitters. But there's only been 23 perfect games and never won in the World Series. See, Larson had started well. And if Larson went into the top of the ninth inning and let's say he gave up a hit and the Yankees still won, it would still be a great win. It'd still be a great day. And the Yankees did go on to win the World Series, unfortunately. But Larson had focus and determination to finish well. Larson goes out to the top of the ninth inning and he's facing uh, the bulk of big hitters for the Dodgers lineup. And the first batter comes out and he's three outs away from making history. First pitch, fastball, fly out. 25. Two more to go. Next batter comes up. Fastball, grounder to the second baseman, Billy Martin. 26. One more out to go. What's going to happen? Over the last um, 150 years, 63 times a pitcher went into the final out of the game, flirting with a no-hitter, gave up a hit. Larson did not want to be that guy. And so history tells us that the Dodgers decided they were going to send a pinch hitter in named Dale Mitchell. Dale was a career 300 hitter. He was the right guy to send in to break up this perfect game. So Larson comes up to the mound and decides he's not going to flirt with the curveball. He's not going to mess around with the changeup. He's throwing him the heater, you know, just like Major League, right? Forget about the curveball, Ricky. Give him the heater. So he goes up there and it strike. Fastball, ball. Fastball, strike. Hitter or pitcher's count. He's got him down one, two. Larson rears back, throws another fastball right off the corner of the plate. Mitchell just couldn't help himself. Tried to check swing. Strike three. Game's over. Yogi Berra, the famous Yankee catcher, runs out and jumps in in Don Larson's arms. 
and later comes up with a quote, the famous quote. You guys know Yogi Berry's full of famous quotes. It ain't over till it's over, right? Here's Don Larson, made history. He started well, but he finished well. And to do so, it took focus. It took determination. He had all the distractions in the world, but he did it. And the world was watching, and he made history that day. And it's a reminder that no matter how you start, what you're remembered by is how you finish. You know, if today, if we, we said today was the end of our game, if today was the top of the ninth for us, how are you doing? How are you finishing? Are you finishing well? You may have started well, but are you finishing strong? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this, this God's plan for us to, to finish well. And we see over and over again this call to endure and this call to be God's people and to, to stay strong until the end, to, to finish well. I think of the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul's nearing the end of his life and he knows that this is it. So he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I have fought the, fight, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've finished well. That's what God has called me to do. I think of Jesus in Matthew 24 when Jesus is bringing his disciples into Jerusalem and he's getting ready to tell them of all the crazy things that are going to happen, of all the wild things that are going to fall on him in history. But Jesus says this. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Meaning, don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Keep going. Don't quit. Stay strong. God has a running theme throughout his word that we are called to stay strong, to finish well. But I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times in my life that I have started strong, but I haven't finished strong. Anybody else been there? I think about once a year I get on this kick where I say I'm going to hit the gym hard. It's usually, you know, right around the time the kids go back to school and I get a little schedule in place. And so I'm going to hit it hard. I'm going five days a week. I'm drinking seaweed and kale protein shakes, right? Boiled chicken and spinach for lunch. I mean, I'm doing good. I can finally see my ribs again for the first time in a long time. But then Halloween comes around. And just throws me off. How many of you know it's just little Reese's peanut butter cups, right? It's just the little gold and, you know what I'm talking about, the little gold and, and red ones. Those get me every single time. This is, I think we've all done it, right? We all get to this place where we're like really excited and we get fired up about stuff. And we do really well. We start strong. You start a new relationship and it goes great and everything's going really well for a while. And then something just happens. It just kind of fizzles out. Maybe you start a new job, and you're really fired up. You kick the door down the first day you go into work, and you're making a difference, and you're loving it. But then over time, it just kind of wanes, and you realize that I probably need to leave before they ask me to leave. It's probably time. Or how many of you know you have this great idea of a home improvement project? Anybody here try to remodel their kitchen during the pandemic? Man, I'm going to remodel my house, but yet it's been three years, and I still don't have cabinet doors in the kitchen. We've all done it, right? We all have a habit of starting strong but finishing weak or drifting away. And I think there's a reason for this. It's because we allow our focus to drift. We get really fired up about something, and we really get excited about something, and our focus is, is crystal clear, but then we get a little bit uh, sidetracked. Something else grabs our attention, and, and it could be a very good thing, but our focus begins to drift. And, and forefront, I'm here to say that one of the main places this happens to us in life is in our faith. Because I want you to think back to the time you put your faith in Jesus. That, that time you got saved and you were on fire for what Jesus was doing. And all you wanted to do was consume this, to hear what God had to say. And you, you invited your friends to church. You were talking about Jesus to your buddies at work. You were excited about it. 
And it was great, but then over time, you know, things just kind of start to come and go, and life ebbs and flows, valleys and peaks, and you find that you're just maybe in your Bible just a little bit less, maybe at church just a little bit less, maybe inviting people to join you at church just a little bit less. What happened? It's not that you didn't love Jesus the same. It's that your focus began to drift. This morning, we're going to dive into Titus chapter 3, and we're going to finish our sermon series that we've been doing the last month and a half in Titus. And we're going to see that Titus finishes the letter. He wraps up the letter with a challenge to us. Don't let your focus drift. Finish well. Stay the course. Be faithful. Over these last six weeks, we've been in this series called Blueprints. And I hope you've had as much fun listening as I've had teaching because it's just this beautiful picture that we get in the book of Titus of how, of how simple God's blueprint is for us, but yet how challenging it can be at the same time. That God has given us this blueprint of what it looks like to live the good life, the blueprint of the healthy church, the blueprint of the healthy Christian, the blueprint of the healthy church leader, and it's someone who is pursuing the good life, the godly life, the faith life. And so today Paul's going to wrap up Titus 3 with this challenge for where is our focus and are we staying focused on Jesus? So I'm excited to go through this today. So if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. We'll open up to Titus chapter 3, and we'll kick off in verse 8. But um, as we do, I just want to kind of challenge you with a question. I want to challenge you as we, as we look here at Titus chapter 3 and, and, and dive into to what Paul is, is really telling us. I want to ask this question. If the good life, if, if the God life is pursuing Jesus in faith, and following what Jesus tells us is the best path for life, the, the, the deep, the, the beautiful, the, the rich life, where have we drifted? Where have we allowed our focus to drift? And what would it look like for us to refocus our attention on Jesus so that we can pursue him into the good life? Look with me in Titus chapter 3. I just want to read verse 8 real quick. We'll start here in verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Notice what... Paul says to Titus, he says this, he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you for these songs that we can sing and we can stir up our heart and our affections for you. Father, we thank you for, for Jason and just what uh, the update we heard about how you're moving in Niger and all over um, Africa and, and around the globe. And uh, Lord, we're just so excited to, to be a part of this mission you've called us on uh, to make Jesus known and famous all over this world. Father, we pray as we, as we wrap up this series today in Titus that you stir our hearts up and really challenge us to say, Lord, how, how are we keeping our focus? Are we keeping our focus on you or are we drifting, which is so easy to do? So, Father, I pray that, um, Lord, help just work in our hearts today, open our eyes and our minds to your way and your blueprint for our life. And I pray that we leave today looking more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. One of the running themes we see throughout the book of Titus, really throughout the whole book, is this idea of pursuing what is good. And Titus is always saying, Paul's always writing to Titus, who was his son in the faith, a church planner, kind of a fixer. He sent to Crete to try to get churches really set on the right path. And he says to Titus, Titus, focus on what's good. Like, pursue what is good. In chapter 2, Paul says to Titus four times, pursue what is good. Teach what is good. 
Hold on to what is good. Do what is good. And here in chapter 3, Titus is told four more times to pursue what is good. And this is where we land in verse 8. Notice again what he says. He says in verse 8 that this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. And he says that these good works that we're to devote ourselves to are, are, are excellent and they're profitable. Like these are good things, excellent and profitable. These are really good things. And as God's people, we need to devote ourselves to what is good. If you are here last week or you're familiar with the book of Titus, Paul really leads up to this idea with this picture of the gospel. Look, if you have your Bibles out, look with me, verse 4. Notice what he says. Paul says this to Titus. He says this. In verse 4, he says, But when the goodness, again, good, and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, verse 7, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, so that we can devote ourselves to good works. See, I want you to see what Paul is saying. I want you to see really the, the line of argumentation he's giving us here is that, is that we need to see that God came, Jesus came because of his love and his goodness and his mercy for us. And he, he came to, to set us on the right path of life. That he came to, to save us and to rescue us from our mess, to rescue us from our sin. He didn't tell us to climb the mountain. He climbed down for us and pulled us out of the muck and the mire and rescued us. And because of that, now we are God's people in this beautiful thing he calls the church. And he sets us on the path of eternal life. And Paul says, because of that reality, because God has changed your heart and God has changed your life and God has changed your future, you should see that God has called you to something bigger and better and more beautiful than yourself. And that is devoting yourself to others, to seeking to be devoted to doing good, but not just for you, but for others too. You know, there's this battle that goes on in our culture right now, and there's this, this battle of, of what really is the good life. See, culture and society wants to tell you that the good life is pursuing what is good for you. And we like that. That sounds good. That the good life is pursuing what is good for me, and if it becomes good for you, then, well, that's good too. But it's me first. But the good life, according to God, is giving good to others. That the good life is, is devoting myself to give good to other people. The good life is making sure you do good for others. So which one is true? When you think back in your life, which, which of those is true? Is, is, is the good life getting good for you? Is the good life giving good for somebody else? You know, if you've uh, been paying attention, um, Christmas is right around the corner. I'm sure you guys have seen a few ads on TV, right, uh, in your email box, but... Um, and if you've also been paying attention, you're aware that if you haven't already bought all your Christmas gifts, you're probably not going to get anything, right? You know, I'm still blaming the Suez Canal for this one. But reality is, you know, you're probably going to be okay. But Christmas is right around the corner. And my four-year-old Chloe has already given me a Christmas list longer than the genealogy of Jesus. But the reality is, like, the kids are really excited about Christmas. And when we're young, we are fired up about Christmas, and we want Christmas gifts, and that's the good life. My four-year-old, the good life is, is getting that OMG 
dollhouse. You guys know what I'm talking about? Dads and daughters? That OMG dollhouse is where it's at. You know, that's, don't tell her she's back there, but that's what she wants. And so the reality is, like, that's the good life for her, but there's something that happens. There's a switch that happens as we get older, and maybe it's when we start having kids, or it's maybe it's when we get a little more mature, or we finally get a job, we make enough money, we can buy our first pair of Jordans, and then we realize that the good life isn't really giving, or isn't really getting, it's giving. And you're like, God, you were right again. It's more blessed to give than receive. And, and, and if you in your mind haven't really come to come to that conclusion, it may be because you haven't given good to somebody else and you're still trying to get good. So God calls us to give good and to pursue what is good. And this is what he has given to us, what is good. So Paul is saying that you have been saved, that God has given you what is good, salvation, internal life, hope, future, joy, peace, grace. God has given all of those things to you so you can give them to somebody else. So you can take what is good and give good to somebody else. But the reality is that we're not saved by that good works. Like, we're not saved by good works. We're saved to do good works. We're saved by faith alone. I love that old saying that you are saved by faith alone, but, faith, but the faith that saves is never alone. That we're saved to this thing that's bigger than us and that's better than us. And this is God's blueprint for us. This is God's blueprint for our life, is to pursue what is good for other people. So this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying that, that the, good life is living a, it, it, the good life is living a life of giving good to others. That the good life is a life of giving good to others. And notice what Paul says about that life. That life is profitable, and that life is excellent. But notice what he says in verse 8. He says, be careful. Look back at verse 8. He says, be careful to devote yourself to this. Why? Isn't that weird? Isn't that a little strange that he's saying be careful? Like, you almost expect Paul to say, hey, be careful not to devote yourself to the bad life, right? Like, be careful not to devote yourself to doing things that aren't good. Instead, he says, be careful to devote yourself to doing what is good. Why is that? Why is he getting at that again? Well, I think he's getting back to what we talked about a minute ago, about how easy it is for us to lose focus. How many of you already today know this is true? How easy it is to lose focus. How many of you today on your drive to church, as you're driving, your mind just wanders maybe to a conversation you had yesterday or a conversation that you have to have this week? How many of you today may be talking to your spouse or to somebody out in the lobby as you're grabbing a cookie and a coffee, which is really good for attention, uh, retention, by the way, just so you guys know. As you're out there having a conversation, how many of you in the middle of that conversation drifted to something else, because somebody said something that reminded you of something you need to do later. Everybody? Anybody? If you don't raise your hand, I think you guys might be lying. So just get honest here. I think all of us have this thing, right, where our focus so easily drifts. It, it, it just moves away so quickly. I've been following the work of a, a doctor at the University of Miami. Her name is Amisha Ja, and she is a, a neuroscientist, and she's studying this idea of mindfulness and how our minds wander. And there's been a lot of research done, but I, one, of the, one of the things that she found in studying is that we have a very limited ability to retain all the information that we come across, as you guys probably could guess. It said that we, as, as, as people only can retain 50% of what we receive. And so that means for about every eight minutes of material, you can only retain about what was said in about four minutes of that. Which means as I sit up here for 35 minutes and teach you God's word, you guys should be taking notes. Because we're not going to remember it all. Just, you know, just a word to the wise. But the reality is that we just don't have the capacity. That's why teachers just kind of have to get it. Teachers in a room, if you can nod along, like kids just can't stay attentive the entire time. 
But that's the way God designed us, right? And so this is the idea of mindfulness and this idea of mind wandering, and it happens so naturally. That's why you can read a whole page in your Bible or another book and not remember a thing you read because your mind wanders, and I want to prove it to you. So we're going to do a little exercise here. Now, I'm going to just, a, just a, a word of caution here. I promise not to throw anything at you, okay? But I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to give you some instructions, and I want to do a test. Well, you, guys, you guys are my experiment here, okay? You guys ready for this? All right, here's what we're going to do. I want, when I give you the command, I want everybody to close their eyes, and I want you just to focus on your breathing, okay? And I want you to notice something about your breathing, right? Notice the sound it makes. Notice the warm air coming in out of your nose. Notice the guy next to you snoring. Just something, right? Notice something about your breathing. And then I want you to focus on that. And then as soon as your attention, as soon as you lose focus and your mind wanders, I want you to open your eyes. You guys ready? Does that make sense what we're going to do here? All right, so everybody, get comfortable. Okay, everybody close your eyes. All right. Okay, so now breathe in and out. And focus on something. And then when your mind wanders, open your eyes. Some of you guys are good. Some of you guys are really good. Some of you opened your eyes after three seconds. Okay, so some of you guys that were good, what was that, 10 seconds? You guys, you guys are uh, above the average. But the reality is that at some point, and if you didn't open your eyes, you probably forgot to because your mind wandered and you were thinking about what you're having for lunch. <laughs> Five or six seconds probably is around where we all land on this. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is just who we are and the way we are. But we have to learn to recognize how easy it is we drift. We couldn't make it six seconds without thinking about what we're having for lunch or whether the Chiefs are going to beat the, or, I'm sorry, going to beat the Cowboys later on today, right? We were just, our minds wander, and these are the things that we, that we do. And so it's no wonder that in life how easy we shift away and lose focus or wane or drift from these things that we're really excited and passionate about because our minds are so easily captivated and pulled off course. And so I think one of the things that Paul wants us to see is that our minds are going to wander naturally. So we need to be careful to stay devoted to doing what is good for other people. Because if we don't, we are going to drift back into the lane of pursuing what is good for me. Because that is naturally where I want to go. And so Paul is going to really kind of flesh this out for us. And he's going to focus on this idea of why we need to be careful and what we need to be careful to avoid. Look at verse 9. Notice what he says in verse 9. Again, Paul loves lists, right? We've talked about lists all throughout this book of Titus. But notice the list that Paul gives us. Paul says, stay focused, be mindful, don't drift, because you can fall into one of these categories. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are, what? Unprofitable and worthless. What, What does it mean to be unprofitable and worthless? It means not to be good. Remember earlier he said that when we devote ourselves to good works, that's good, that's profitable, that's excellent. But when we devote ourselves to this stuff, this kind of foolish, some of your translations may say foolish controversies, when we devote ourselves to this stuff, it's just not good. It may not be bad. Like it may just not have any value at all, but it has drifted you away, your focus away from God's mission for you, which is to be the church. And so notice this list. I'm not going to hit this list. I'm not going to spend much time on this list. But notice just these things. And I want you to ask yourself, have I fallen into one of these? Have I fallen into one of these? Have I allowed myself to drift into one of these things? He says, first, foolish controversies. 
This pandemic has been full of foolish controversies. If you've been on Twitter, get off Twitter, because it's full of foolish controversies. I mean, the reality is that we so easily get worked up about stuff. I mean, we can get into an argument about our favorite sports team. I mean, like, like, that's ridiculous, right? Yet I keep getting in that argument. I don't know why. But think about the political arguments that were going on last year leading into the election. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, people aren't even friends anymore because of that. I think that Paul would say that's kind of foolish, right? Like we're arguing about something that really doesn't have eternal value. That's not one of the main things that we need to be focused on. He says avoid these foolish controversies. He says avoid genealogies. Now, I don't think he's talking about, like, your family tree, like, you shouldn't go on Ancestry.com. Like, I don't think that's a big, a, you know, that's what he's talking about here. But I think what was going on is that you had, you, had, you had Greek Christians and you had Jewish Christians in this church. And, you know, the Jewish Christians said, we're Jewish, we are better than you. And the Greek, Greek Christians said, no, you're not. And they tried to show that their dad could beat up their dad. And it just became kind of this messy genealogy argument, right? But he also says, avoid dissensions in the church. He's talking about fights. I mean, you guys might, I mean, I will say, Forefront, we are an amazing group. You guys are incredible, and the unity here is beautiful. But people fight in church, right? We've been blessed to not have that. But, you know, there's been some fist fights in church before over the silliest of things. And he's saying, avoid dissensions. Why are we arguing about stuff? And then he also kind of drills down to one of the things that were really going on in, in Crete at the time, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is this, this quarrels about the law. You know, in this case, it was like, you know, you need to follow the Mosaic law if you're really going to be a good Christian. And the Greeks are saying, no, 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 that's not what Paul said. And, but what I think he, he's talking about here applies to us is that we can get really excited about theology sometimes. and We can get really worked up about something. But if it's not the main thing, then why are we fighting about it? Now, I love to sit around with Darren and Ron and these guys and have theological discussions. But there's a place for that. It should never lead to a fight. It should never lead to a quarrel. And so notice what Paul is saying. He's saying when you drift, when you get off focus of what God is calling you to do, you can easily fall into one of these categories. And my guess is you know somebody, when I said quarrel about the law, when I said foolish controversies, you said ding, 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 ding. Right? There's somebody. There's somebody you're friends with on Instagram that's posting stuff, and you're going, man, they've gotten drifted off focus. But it can happen so easily to us too. And so you might ask, why, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal of drifting off focus? Why can't I just get in, in, engaged in some of these things? Does it really matter? And here's why it matters. Because what Paul is saying is that when we drift off the main focus of what God has called us to do, we become a distraction from Jesus. Like the, the reality is that when you and I get into these fights and argument about things, the watching world is looking in and going, man, these Christians, these Christians are always fighting. These Christians cannot agree what color the carpet needs to be. That's why we go to tile, right? I mean, just, like, these Christians just want to fight about everything, and it becomes a distraction from what Jesus is doing. I think Paul says letting your focus drift from Jesus' mission easily leads us to distraction for the church. And the watching world is looking at us just like they watched Don Larson pitch that ninth inning. And then what's are they going to do? How's it going to go? And they see us maybe start strong, but we're not finishing strong. And so Paul's saying, guys, we cannot lose focus. He said, be careful. Stay focused on the gospel, and it will drive you to focus on the good of other people. See, this is what Paul's getting at. See, if we stay focused on the gospel, it's going to drive us to staying focused on the good of other people because we are remembering what Jesus did for us and that Jesus gave good to us so we can give good to others. 
So a question I want to ask is, that, and I want you to ponder this this week as you, as you go, as you spend time this week, as you open God's word, as you go to work, as you spend time with friends and small life groups, why don't you ask the question, where have I gotten off course? Where have I drifted? And where am I being a distraction for Jesus? Like, am I so worked up about something that I'm fighting with people on social media? Am I becoming a distraction for Jesus? Am I so off focus on something else that I'm not being the person God has called me to be? Where have I become a distraction from Jesus? So Paul says, be careful. Stay focused on the main thing. Now, it's a beautiful thing to say. It's a harder thing to do. So how do we do this? What does it look like for us to stay focused on the gospel? And what does it look like for us to be able to pursue what God calls us to be? And, and how do we recognize when we're starting to drift away? Well, I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He says this. He says, set your minds on the things above and not on the things of this earth. He's saying set your minds on the things of God. Set your minds on, on Jesus. And, and as you do, it'll pull you away from uh, being tempted by drifting we got to keep focused and keep setting our minds on the things that God is doing. And that's why I think Paul said in verse 4 that we need to focus on the gospel, that we need to remember that God's grace and loving kindness and, and, and goodness have come to us because the more time we spend in this book, especially when we start our days in this book, helps us redirect and realize that we're not drifting. And when we start to drift, it catches us, and the Holy Spirit will nudge us and say, hey, we're getting off, we're getting out of the lane just a little bit. We need to stay in the lane. Because God's word helps us to shine the flashlight into our life to see where we're starting to move to the left and to the right. But I also want us to see that this isn't something that we do on our own. This isn't something that you are just a lone range Christian that you have to do on your own. This is meant to be done in community. Notice Paul's words to Titus. This gets, Paul gets pretty hard, harsh here, but he's speaking truth. He's saying that, that we need to help each other keep from drifting. Notice verse 10. Notice what he says here in verse 10 and verse 11. He says, For as for the person who stirs up division, these are the person, people in the foolish controversies and the quarreling and, and the dissension. As for the person who is stirring up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's talking about church discipline here. This is a hard topic, but what he's saying is that when we recognize that we've got a brother or sister who's drifting off course, we've got to say something. We've got to walk with them. We've got to help bring them back in line. Because if we don't, then they're going to drift even farther, and they're going to give the church a really bad name. And so this isn't just a solo effort, guys. This is something that we are called to do together. So here's what I want to ask you. Who in your life has drifted that you need to talk to? Who in your life is someone, maybe it's a friend, family member, maybe it's somebody at work that you know is a follower of Jesus, but you're seeing them drift and they're getting into all kinds of stuff that you need to help bring back, that you need to help remind. And maybe, where in your life have you drifted to? It's a big challenge that Paul gives us right here. And so I want you to notice, so Paul really drill, drills down on this challenge about staying focused, and then he ends the letter with some kind of inter, some instructions, and, and we'll read that real quick. I want you to notice what he says here. Notice next, verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let, notice, this, notice this, last, this last kind of instruction, and let our people learn to devote themselves again, right, to good works, so that as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
And then he ends with his, his, his blessing. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And Paul just, mic drop, ends it right there. But I want you to notice something. In his final instructions, he's saying, hey, I'm going to send a couple people to you. I want you to come to me. I'm make sure to send Zenos and Apollos. Give them some money and help them speed them along their way. He gives us really the, the, like the, the handles for us to end this letter with in verse 14. Look back. Did you notice what he said? He said, the exclamation mark to this entire book, all that I told you about God's blueprints for churches and leaders and Christians is this. Devote yourself to good. Devote yourself to good and help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Do what is good. Focus on what is good. See, Paul wants to leave us with this, and he says this. He says that God's people should be so moved and motivated because of the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that it causes us to step out beyond ourselves and devote ourselves to giving what is good to other people. And when the world looks at you, when the world looks at you, Forefront Church, when the world looks at you and says, this person, what they see is not dissension, and they see is not distraction, but what they see is someone who is on mission for Jesus and is doing good for other people, and the world will know that they are mine, Jesus says, when we live like that. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you to, to devote yourself to good and the urgent needs of other people? So forefront, as we, as we close here, I want to just bring this home for us. There may not be a better time for us to hear this, it's Thanksgiving this week. We're moving into the Christmas season, and we have got opportunities, as Danica said, as Jason just showed, all around us to partner, to get involved, to care for those who have needs. Like, right now, we have an opportunity to do good and to give good. But I want to ask you, let's take it a step further. You personally, who do you know that has a need right now? Who do you know? Who's somebody in your life you know that is walking through a really hard season that needs your help? Who is in your life that God is calling you to, to do something for, to do good for? See, the reality is some of us, we have some really good opportunities to give. But if you ask me, who's really in a hard season right now? I may not know. I may be in a pretty good place right now. I might not have any neighbors who are struggling. People at work seem to be doing okay. So how do we really know? How do we really get involved where we can help those in need? Well, I want to take a page out of Jesus' book because I think Jesus is going to show us exactly the way he did it. In Luke chapter 19, we come across this really incredible account of Jesus and his disciples. And they're going to Jericho. And in Jericho, there's this crowd, as Jesus always had. There was a crowd of people that surrounded him. And they heard about this Jesus guy. And they wanted to see this Jesus guy because they hear he feeds the 5,000 and that he heals the sick and he gives sight to the blind and he helps the deaf hear. And so this crowd goes on the side of the road and they're all gathered there. But there's a, a guy named Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is not a very tall guy. And I can tell you as I'm not a very tall guy, it's hard to see over a crowd. And so Luke tells us that Zacchaeus actually ran and climbed a tree, which is crazy because in first century Jewish culture, men didn't run. And men for sure didn't climb trees. But yet here's Zacchaeus. He's climbing this tree. He just wants to see Jesus. He just wants to, to see what everybody's been saying because he hears that this is the Son of God. And he knows that in his heart, he's got a hole that nothing can fill. 
And so Jesus is walking down the street, and Jesus looks up, and he sees Zacchaeus in his tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down from there. We're going to go to your house. I'm going to go stay with you. And he did, and Zacchaeus invited his friends, and they had, they had a dinner. But the religious leaders didn't like it. They didn't like it at all because, well, he was hanging out with somebody who wasn't like them. He was hanging out with somebody who was low, who was a sinner, he was a tax collector. He's not a good guy. You know, it's interesting that over the course of Jesus' ministry, he always got criticized for eating with the wrong people. Jesus was actually called a, te- called a, a glutton and a drunkard because he was always eating and drinking. That Jesus was always in somebody's kitchen. Jesus was always sitting across from somebody's dining room table, and they're spending time together. And we see something about Jesus, and that the way that Jesus got to know people was across the dinner plate. You know, Jesus, being criticized for spending time with Zacchaeus, he says this. He says, I'm on a mission, and my mission is to seek and save the lost. And did Jesus do that by preaching on street corners? He did. And did Jesus do that by healing and doing miracles? He did. But one of the main ways that Jesus did it was sitting across the dinner table by being hospitable. Because it was in that moment he could hear what's going on in your world. And he could respond the way he needed to. For what would it look like if we as a church filled living rooms and filled dining rooms and filled kitchens this Christmas season and spent time with people that we really didn't know well yet, but we invited them in and we began to hear their story and we began to find out what was going on in their life? How would that change who you know that personally has a need right now? What would it look like if Forefront Church, small church here in west, southwest Denver, became a place of hospitality where we began to get to know people on a deeper level so that when they had needs, when they needed help, we could step right in. See, I think that has the power to change somebody's life. So here's my challenge for you over these next 30 days, just about a month out from Christmas. Show hospitality to somebody new. And more directly, I challenge you, each of you, to invite somebody new to your house for dinner. Invite them into your home, coworker, neighbor, maybe somebody you don't know, somebody who doesn't go to church, somebody who may not even know Jesus, and invite them in and get to know them. Because when you do, God will do something special and show you how you can do good for somebody else. Jesus challenged us. He said that you are the light of the world. And when you shine your light through good works, The world will know you are mine. Forefront, let's be God's people and let's follow his blueprint to help Jesus seek and save the lost and be the people he has created you and me to be. Would you pray with me?